This past week, the New Testament reading on our Bible reading guide that we have out front would have been from the book of Acts, chapters 18, 19, 20, 21, and 22. Wednesday would have been the 20th. As I read the 20th chapter in the book of Acts, my mind began to focus in more detail, you might say, than usual, and it's been on my mind ever since. So that's what I want to speak to you about this morning is the events that take place in the life of the Apostle Paul as recorded in Acts chapter 20. We're going to find some farewells in Paul's experience in Acts chapter 20. A farewell journey uh, and a farewell message in particular. Now, the book of Acts is the fifth book of the New Testament. Uh, it picks up with the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ, as we find in Acts chapter 1. So therefore, Christ arose and he went up. We find in Acts chapter 2 where the Holy Spirit came down. We have the day of Pentecost. And then we have the apostles, 11. At this point, Paul, I think we make the legitimate 12. We know there was one set aside by the name of Matthias in Acts chapter 1. But nevertheless, the apostles went out. So Christ went up, Holy Spirit came down, and the apostles went out. And the apostles went out to carry out their commission that Christ gave them that's recorded in Matthew 28, 19 and 20, and Mark 16, 15 and 16, where the Lord told his apostles to go and teach all nations. Now they have the freedom of liberty to preach wherever the Holy Spirit guide and direct them, whether it be Jews or whether it be Gentiles. So now the apostles set out to accomplish that, that mission. Now, the book of Acts has 28 chapters in it. The first 12 chapters primarily focus on the life of the apostle Peter and his ministry. The last 16 chapters primarily focus on the life and the ministry of the apostle Paul. Peter was the apostle to the circumcision, a name given to the Jews. And we find that Paul was uh, the apostle to the uncircumcised, another name for the Gentiles. So Peter was an apostle to the Jews, Paul to the Gentiles. That did not mean that Peter didn't have some interaction with some of the uh, Gentile people. We read in Acts chapter 10 where, you know, there was a man by the name of Cornelius who was a centurion. And uh, we won't go into that story, but we know how the Apostle Peter is used in the conversion of Cornelius and his household. And then we know that the Apostle Paul had numerous interactions uh, with the Jewish people. He often went, when he went to a new place, the first place he went was into the synagogue to where the Jewish people were. But his apostleship primarily was to the Gentiles and Peter's was primarily to the Jews. Now we come to Acts chapter 20. We find where Paul is on his farewell journey. And the uh, Apostle Luke, or Luke himself, uh, being a physician, uh, he wrote uh, the Gospel of Luke, and he also wrote the book of Acts. And we find in the Gospel of Luke, the last third of it, he covers the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, as Christ set his face like a flint, and was steadfast on going to Jerusalem, where he would die. Nothing would deter Christ from doing that. Again, he set his face like a flint, steadfast. He knew where he was going, what he was going to accomplish. And he went there to die. Luke primarily does the same thing with Paul here. Uh, beginning about chapter 19, we find that Paul eventually wound up in Rome. Before he gets to Rome, he goes to Jerusalem. And Paul's face, like Christ, was set steadfastly to go there. In this chapter, you'll find where the Apostle Paul said, none of these things move me, that is the afflictions and bonds that await me there. He says, but I am determined to go to Jerusalem. And so Paul wouldn't go there. He said his face like Christ did, you might say, in a steadfast manner, in a steadfast way. There's a parallel between the two. There's a difference also. Christ went to Jerusalem to die. The Apostle Paul went to Jerusalem to testify about his death. The Lord Jesus Christ knew everything that would befall him. The Apostle Paul did not. But the Apostle Paul did know whatever befelled him, the Lord Jesus Christ knew. And by the grace of Christ, he'd be able to accomplish his purpose and what Christ sent him there to do. Now, the grace of God will never lead you to a place where his grace will not sustain you for why he led you there to begin with. Always remember that. I remember my experience Many, many years ago, in 1979, when I left North Carolina to go down to Florida to accept the pastoral care of Little Union Primitive Baptist Church in Lithia, 
I was 650 miles away. I did not know what lay in front of me, but I was convinced then, even as a real young preacher, a real young preacher, I'm just a young preacher now, but then I was a real young preacher, and I was convinced back then that if God's grace was leading me there, God's grace would sustain me there. Then the year 2000, 2001, I was faced with another decision whether to leave there and come here. And I knew if the grace of God was leading me here, the grace of God would sustain me here. My experience has proven to me that I was correct in both those statements that I just made. The Apostle Paul, as we'll see in this chapter, uh, did not know in details what was before him, but he knew if God was directing him in that direction, in that place, that his grace would sustain him when he got there. Now, as we begin looking uh, in Acts chapter 20, we find that Paul is going to go to Macedonia, where he will abide there for a certain length of time. Uh, we find sometimes Paul was in a place for a day, sometimes in a place for a few days, sometimes in a place for a few weeks. And we'll find out eventually he's going to be in a place for three years. But before he gets there, he's going to be in a place three months. So Paul never went from one place to the other, determining ahead of time just exactly how long he might be there. But this is Paul's farewell journey. In the back of your Bibles, uh, most Bibles are going to have some maps. And one of those maps in the back of your Bible will show you the three journeys that Paul made uh, after his Damascus Road experience. When God sent him different places, he sent him on three journeys. Now a lot of people call these Paul's three missionary journeys. I call them Paul's three evangelistic journeys. But missionary journey is okay because a missionary journey is a journey that somebody has taken for a mission. And certainly the Apostle Paul was on a mission in all of these journeys that he went on. This is his last journey that he's going to take where he will eventually end up in Rome where history will tell us that he will be beheaded by Nero, the emperor of Rome at that particular time. So let's notice a few details. We're going to look at a few scriptures here. And this chapter is rich, very rich in expressions of scripture that will tell us what kind of man Paul was, but also the kind of message that Paul preached in his mission going from one place to the other. Now, on this particular one, Paul had expressed earlier a desire to go back and visit places he had been in the beginning. In the beginning, Paul was blessed of God to go into different uh, places of the known world of that day where the gospel had never been preached. And he went there and he was the first one to preach the gospel in those locations. And through God's blessings upon his efforts and labors, we find that churches were established, churches were organized. But Paul had a desire to go back and visit them again. He wanted to see how they were doing. He wanted to be sure to encourage them to remain faithful. God's people haven't always remained faithful. That's, that's one of the most unfortunate things about a pastoral or a, a pastor's responsibility is to see some unfaithfulness in, among the congregation. They're not always faithful. I think about how Paul addressed the church at Ephesus in the beginning, Ephesians chapter 1. He said, Paul, the servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the saints which are at Ephesus, to the faithful in Christ Jesus. He didn't write that letter to the unfaithful. He wrote it to the faithful. He wrote to the saints which were at Ephesus and to the faithful which were in Christ Jesus. Now, Paul wanted to see how they were doing. He wanted to encourage them to remain steadfast in their commitment to be a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Also, you'll find the opening verses of this 20th chapter where there are seven different men who are going to go with Paul on this journey. Now, you'll find uh, corresponding scriptures, you might say, in Romans chapter 15, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, uh, some of the same names of these men who went with Paul through these different areas. So they assisted Paul in this. And you'll find where there were those Gentiles in some of these churches who was going to send relief or some ministerial support to the poor saints which are at Jerusalem. And these seven men who went with Paul on this journey would assist him in carrying that out. Now, we find here in uh, Acts chapter 20, uh, in verse 3, notice this. And there abode three months uh, in Macedonia, and when the Jews laid wait for him. This is an expression you find in the book of Acts about the Jews who wanted to kill the apostle Paul. 
another thing he had in common with the Lord Jesus Christ. Of course, you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you find where the Jews uh, conspired and took counsel numerous times about slaying the Savior, about taking his life. Well, the Jews did the same thing with Paul. Now, in Paul's um, conversion on the Damascus Road that's recorded for us in Acts chapter 9, you're going to find where Paul, on the way to Damascus, has his conversion. When he gets to Damascus, he goes there. Now his mission has changed. He went there to persecute the Lord's church. Now he goes there to take care of the Lord's people in that area, in that city. But the Jews were stirred up against Paul. And it says they laid in wait. Now there's a lot of difference in waiting for someone and laying in wait for someone. Now Karen and I, coming up on our 55th wedding anniversary, and for 50, about 55 years I've been waiting on her and she's been waiting on me. Now that word wait can mean two different things. It can mean that you're stationary and you're waiting for somebody to come. I've done a lot of that in the mall. But anyway, and then you find the word wait also has reference to serving. And so she and I have been a pretty good combination for 55 years. And we have waited on each other in different ways during those 55 years. But the Jews laid in wait for a different reason. They didn't wait, they didn't wait to take the life of Paul. You find four different occasions in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 9, Acts chapter 20, Acts chapter 23, and Acts chapter 25. Where it specifically tells us how the Jews were laying in wait in their efforts to slay or to kill the Apostle Paul. They never did. Now, he was finally killed in Rome by Nero, but the Jews never did kill him, even though they even took vows to do it. Uh, I mean, they were determined to do it, and God in his providence had work for Paul to do. And as long as God's got work for a man to do, he's untouchable from the standpoint of losing his life, as long as he has work for him. I don't know of any man that knows just how much work God has for him, but God knows. And until that time comes, the Lord's going to keep in him his providence to where he can carry out the work that God has assigned him, you might say, to do. So we find that Paul, uh, in verse 3 here, says, And there abode three months, and when the Jews laid wait for him, as he was about to sail into Syria, he purposed to return through Macedonia. Now then it tells about these men that were with him here. And we come to verse 6, And we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, when you see the word we in the book of Acts, that means Luke is with them. There's three, I believe, uh, distinct periods of time in the book of Acts, possibly four, but I think three, where it goes from they to we. When you see the word we, that means Luke, who's writing this, is an eyewitness of all this, and he's accompanying the apostle Paul and the others in their efforts and their labors. So, and we sailed from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and came unto them in Troas in five days, where we abode seven days. Now, he was three months earlier in a place. Now he's going to be here seven days. The word Troas ought to trigger something in your mind. Uh, we go to Acts chapter 16, and we find where the apostle Paul was going to go and preach the gospel in Asia. At least he thought he was. But the Bible says the Holy Spirit forbade him. Then he thought, well, I'll go to Bithynia, another location, but the Holy Spirit suffered him not. So Paul done what he should have done. He just stayed right where he was at until he had a clear, uh, you might say, understanding what God wanted to do. And where was he at? He was in Troas. And we find where the Lord appeared to him in the night. And he saw a man in Macedonia, right where he's just left. He just left Macedonia, comes to Troas. But in Acts chapter 16, he's in Troas, and he's going to wind up going to Macedonia. He saw a man of Macedonia saying, come over here and help us. And then the next morning, Paul and them said, feeling assured that the Lord was in the matter, we took a straight course. The shortest distance between two points is a straight line, right? So they didn't want to take any detours, unnecessary stops. They took a straight course, feeling that the Lord was in the arrangement. That's where they're at right now. In Troas, where he had that vision, where he had that experience. And they're going to be here seven days. Now, the next two or three verses are really critical because I want you to see what primitive Christianity is all about. I want you to see what primitive worship is about. I want you to see what primitive service is about. You might say, well, Brother Lawrence, why are you using the word primitive? Because the word primitive means original. The word primitive means first. 
And even people who are not primitive Baptists speak about primitive Christianity. They're talking about the Christianity that you read about in the Bible in the early days of the church and the early days of the disciples. The word primitive, just for those who don't know, was coined around 1830, 1832. Prior to that time, if you referred to the Baptists, you didn't refer to primitive Baptists, missionary Baptists, Southern Baptists, independent Baptists, first Baptist, second Baptist, third Baptist, last Baptist, or whatever. It was just Baptist. And the Baptists overall believed the same thing. They believed in the sovereignty of God. They believed in the doctrine of election. They believed in the doctrine of predestination. They believed in the effectual call, basically our articles of faith. But around 1800, a movement came in among the Baptists, started over in England, came in among the Baptists. And that movement was that unless we carry the gospel to foreign lands, etc., those type of things, uh, then people are going to die and they're going to be lost, eternally speaking. Well, at that time, the Baptists never believed that. They believed that God had a people in every nation, kindred, tongue, and people, and God would deliver them from a state of death and sin to a state of life in Christ in his own time. Uh, that none of them would be lost because the gospel was not designed to help God save people for heaven. The gospel was designed to inform God's people who are going to heaven how they're going to get to heaven so they could rejoice and honor God while they live right here. That's the purpose of the gospel, you see. So a big division took place. 1832 is the date that's generally given. There's a place in Maryland called um, Black Rock, Black Rock, Maryland. And one of the most famous documents that was signed there, it was signed there by ministers among the Baptists who were going to stay with the original Baptists. And it's known as the Black Rock Address. And they declared what they were for and declared what they was against. And a division took place. Baptists divided. Those who embraced the new movement, so to speak, were known as the New School Baptists. Those who stuck to what had already been there were known as the Old School Baptists. Then the New School Baptists became known as the Missionary Baptists. The Old School Baptists became known as Primitive Baptists. That's where the word primitive originated. The word primitive meaning original or first, sticking to uh, the doctrine of the first ones in the church, which were the apostles and the manner and way of worship. Now, last Sunday I mentioned about the blueprint for the New Testament church being in the New Testament. Uh, the blueprint for it, the pattern for New Testament worship is found in the New Testament, just like God gave the blueprint for the Solomon's temple, gave the blueprint for Moses and the tabernacle, gave the blueprint for Noah and the ark. He did the same thing for his church here in the, the New Testament. He gave us 14, uh, uh, excuse me, he gave us uh, nine, uh, nine letters to churches and three letters to ministers as well as a church to an to a letter to an individual by the name of Philemon, and a letter to the Hebrew Christians called Hebrews. But the church was given nine letters to guide them and to direct them and to teach them the doctrine of the church and the worship that how the church should worship, what should be in the church, what should not be in the church, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So in these next three couple of verses here, actually, I want us to take a look and see exactly who was worshiping, where they was worshiping, and how they were worshiping. Notice this. We look here in verse 7. And upon the first day of the week. The first day of the week is Sunday. Upon the first day of the week, the disciples gathered together to break bread. Paul preached unto them, ready to depart on the morrow, and continued his speech until midnight. Now, the Apostle Paul was not known for sermonettes. The Apostle Paul preached lengthy sermons. He preached till midnight, and that's, he's not over yet, okay? He preached to midnight. But let's notice what this one verse tells us right here. The disciples gathered together on the first day of the week. The first day of the week is the day the Lord Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all tell us that Christ arose on the first day of the week. They all tell us that Mary Magdalene and the other women went to the sepulchre on the first day of the week. Why? Because Christ had prophesied and declared he'd be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. It'd been three days and three nights. They came there and found what? An empty tomb and an empty grave. In 1 Corinthians 16, Paul says, As I have written to the church in Galatia, and given orders to the churches of Galatia, 
even so do I unto thee, upon the first day of the week. Let every one of you, as God has prospered him, lay aside. All right, and notice what this said, on the first day of the week. Why did he say the first day of the week? Because that's when the disciples now were meeting. After the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, he's going to make an appearance to his apostles who behind, who've gathered together behind closed doors. Guess what day of the week it was? It was the first day of the week. Paul says, upon the first day of the week, as I have given order to the churches of Galatia, even so do I unto you, let every one of you, not some of you, but every one of you, lay aside as God has prospered him. That's the New Testament rule of giving. As God has prospered you. That's for you to determine. That's for you to think about. That's for you to pray about. That's for you to take a self-examination about. Sometimes people ask me about that, and I said, you know, I, I can't tell you. I know how they gave in the Old Testament day. God's order in the Old Testament was for tithing. If you want to tithe today, that's fine. If that's how you want to do it, that's fine. Nothing wrong with that. But you might want to give more than a tithe. Or you may not be able to give that much, and you give less. Uh, as, every, as God has prospered you, let every one of you so lay aside as God has prospered him. In 2 Corinthians, we find 9 and 6 where he said, you know, uh, let, every, let every one of us give not grudgingly or necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. Our giving should be cheerful giving. After we've made that self-examination, after we have determined to the best of our ability through consultation and conversation and prayer with God what it is that we should give, then we need to give it cheerfully, not grudgingly, not necessity. Right now, people are filing their taxes. Those who pay income taxes, I don't know if anybody does it cheerfully. I don't know if anybody comes to the CPA and says, <laughs> you ain't going to believe how many taxes I had to pay today. I'm so glad that I have the opportunity once a year to pay my taxes. Or maybe you pay them on a quarterly basis. Maybe you have them taken out on a weekly basis. I don't, I've never heard anybody shout for joy, jump up and click their heels because they had to pay taxes. But God wants you to give cheerfully in support of his kingdom, his church, and his ministry, right? That's a lot of difference. <laughs> uh, we put our check back there in the plate every Sunday cheerfully. I uh, just had to mail off some money to the IRS, and I had a hard time getting to the mailbox. I just didn't, I was reluctant. I gave it grudgingly. And I wouldn't, I know we have to have it. I wouldn't mind it so much if they used it in a, in a good way. If they used it with wisdom instead of throwing it away and wasting it. I can't afford to get off on that. But anyway, uh, we find the disciples met on the first day of the week. Now, they met in a large upper room on the Lord's Day at night. Why was that? Because in biblical days, they didn't have a five-day work week and a weekend of Saturday and Sunday where people were off. And some of the early converts were servants, and they had deeds responsibilities in the daytime, so they met at night in a large upper room. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? When the Lord told his disciples to go into Jerusalem, it was time for the Feast of the Passover, he told them to find, he'll find a man carrying a, 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 you know, a large pitcher of water and you're to follow him to a certain place, to a certain house, and the good house will show you what? A large upper room. The church in that day didn't have buildings like this to meet in. They met in homes. One of the characteristics of, of Aquila and Priscilla, that husband-wife team you find in Acts, well, you find them in Romans, you find them also in the letters to the church at Corinth. Six times they made mention there. All six times it's always Aquila and Priscilla, Priscilla and Aquila. They're never mentioned separately. But one of the things that's mentioned about them is that they had the church in their house. The church met in their house. That was the meeting place. This is the house of God. It's a place that we've been blessed to have where we can meet together in this place. They met, the Lord's people met in the Lord's house on the first day of the week. Now, the Lord's people referred to here as disciples. The word disciple or disciples is recorded 273 times in the Bible. It's first found in Acts, uh, excuse me, uh, in Acts 11:26, it says they were first called Christians. The disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. The word Christian didn't originate until Acts chapter 11. 
found three times in the Bible. The word disciple, disciples, is found 273 times. A disciple is a committed, let me emphasize that word committed and faithful, committed and faithful follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to find here where Paul is going to find some disciples who have gathered together on the Lord's people on the Lord's day. First day of the week, the Lord's day. Now that expression, the Lord's day, is found one time in the Bible, Revelation 1.10. In Revelation 1.10, you find the apostle John on the island of Patmos. And he said, I was in the Lord. He says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. That was the first day of the week. It became known as the Lord's Day in celebration of the life of the Lord Jesus Christ concerning his resurrection. But not only is the Lord's people do they meet in celebrating, you know, recognizing, celebrating the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. Celebration is one thing, edification is another thing, and I'll hold off on that for just a moment. So the Lord's people, he, Paul finds the Lord's people in the Lord's house on the Lord's day. All right? Now, what are they doing? They're breaking bread. Now, the expression breaking bread is going to be used twice here in these few verses. You're going to find they were breaking bread when Paul finds them in the Lord's house on the Lord's day in that large upper room, which has reference to the communion. Now, a little later on, the next morning, before Paul departs, you're going to find where it reads, they were breaking bread, and in reference to a meal. Sometimes you read that expression, it has reference to one thing. Sometimes that expression has reference to another, and you study the context to determine why. So let's read this once again. Upon the first day of the week, the Lord's day, when the disciples, the Lord's people, came together to break bread, the Lord's supper, now, what did they do? They came together. They came, disciples came together. Now, when I read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, I find where different groups of people came together for different things. I find where the Pharisees sometimes came together. Sometimes I find where the Sadducees came together. Sometimes I find where the Pharisees and the scribes came together. And every time where I read they came together, they came together in order to entrap, to ensnare uh, the Lord Jesus Christ in some question that they had. But the Lord said in Matthew 18 and 20, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst. The disciples gathered together for a different reason. The disciples gathered together in the name of Christ, in recognition of his name, in recognition of his life in recognition of his work, in recognition of his teachings and instructions, where two or three are gathered together in my name, where is the Lord? He's right in the middle of them. He's in the midst. That kind of excites me a little bit. What about you? Where two or three are gathered together in my name, therefore I'm in the midst of them. In Matthew chapter 5, there are multitudes gathered uh, together, and Christ separated, went to the top of a mountain, and his disciples among the multitudes separated themselves from the multitudes and came up together where Christ taught them from the mountain. I find uh, in Matthew chapter 13, where the multitudes gathered themselves together and came to Christ. These are the disciples. They gathered themselves uh, in multitudes and came to him. And the Bible says Christ uh, went into a ship near the shore and taught them from the ship. They're on the shore. He's on a boat short ways out into the water and he's teaching his disciples. In Mark chapter 2, the Bible says, and his disciples had gathered together in a house and the house was full and they were there to see Jesus and Jesus began to teach them. What do we find in common here? Jesus teaching from a mountain. Jesus teaching from a ship on the sea. Jesus teaching in a house. Luke chapter 4 tells us Jesus went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day as was his custom and he taught them on the Sabbath day from the synagogue. We find that Jesus taught them from the temple. I've given you five locations where Jesus taught. He taught from a mountain. He taught from a ship. He taught from uh, uh, the synagogue. He taught from the temple and he taught the people in the house. Uh, the Lord was always teaching, wasn't he? 
And you see these different places, different locations where he was teaching, where they had gathered together for the purpose of hearing him and also to obtain the miracles that only Christ could perform. So the Lord's people were gathered together for different reasons. When the Lord's people meet to worship, the Bible teaches that as a gathering together. In Hebrews chapter 10, we are exhorted. In 10, 25, and 26, Paul says, As you therefore so much more see the day approaching, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together. He meant worship. As you much see so much more the day approaching. What day is he talking about? He's talking about the Lord's day. As you see the Lord's day approaching, you see the Lord's day approaching, you see the first day of the week approaching, you see the day of, of the Lord approaching, forsake not the assembly of yourselves together as the manner of some is. So that tells me that church attendance has always been a problem with some people. There were people who were forsaking the assembly themselves together in that day, and Paul exhorts those in Hebrews chapter 10 not to do that. <laughs> Karen, I... Went out to eat a couple of days ago, and we met this couple from, uh, from Alabama. And we had a nice conversation. Of course, it, it leads to what you do, what I do, et cetera, et cetera, and all that. So he found out I was a preacher. And then he wanted to know what I thought about teaching in tongues and things of that nature. We got a little bit of that. Uh, but anyway, he says, you know, he says, um, uh, sometimes our, our members who can't come to church on Sunday find enough strength and health to be at Walmart on Monday. I said, you got some of them too? He said, yeah, yes, we do. <laughs> I was glad to, glad to find out that, you know, we, that these are some of the things we have in common with our good brothers and sisters out, out here in the religious world. And um, I remember going down to Lake City uh, a church down in Lake City, Florida. I've been down for the last 28 years in a row in the fall. Uh, Elder Herman Griffin was the pastor who passed away a few weeks ago. But anyway, I'd be with him, and uh, during the daytime, he said, I, we need to, I need to run to Walmart. Hopefully, I'll see some of our members there and let them know about church tonight. You know, and so we, sure enough, you wouldn't hardly believe it, but it's the truth. <laughs> We'd go there and he'd run somebody on the aisle and say, I just want to let you know uh, we're having church tonight. These are members. You've got to invite members to come to church. <laughs> that shouldn't be the case. Now, let's get back to gathering together. <laughs> the Lord's people, these disciples, the Lord's people, gather together at the Lord's house on the Lord's day to observe the Lord's supper. Now, how should we observe the Lord's supper? The Bible doesn't tell us how frequent, how often we do it. It does tell us to do it often. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six, 26. And Jesus says, as, as you, uh, you know, eat this bread and drink this wine, you always do it in remembrance of me as oft as you do it until the Lord comes again. Now, we do it twice a year here at Bethel Church, usually April, October. We do it here. If we did it five times a year, that would be okay, biblically speaking, or six times a year. But I think the point here is that you never want to do it so frequently that it loses its sacredness and it you become routine and it just becomes action rather than feeling that you have. It's something special. You should look forward to it. It's something very special, very unique, very important. We meet to observe the Lord's Supper. And that's what they were doing on this occasion here. Uh, some people, uh, you know, meet, do it more frequently uh, than other people do. But I'm, I'm telling you, it needs to be done in such a manner, in such a way that you have enough space in between that you begin to yearn for it. You begin to long for it. You begin to desire it. You begin to hunger for it and thirst for it. To meet in the Lord's house, to have communion with the Lord's people and the Lord's church. So they were Lord's people meeting in the Lord's house on the Lord's day to observe the Lord's supper. And while Paul was long preaching, I want you to notice this. About the only thing some people get out of what I'm reading right here is there was a young man who fell out of a roof and died because Paul was preaching so long. That's what they remember about it. Let's take a look at that. And there were many lights in the upper chambers. He said to continue his speech in the midnight. I don't know what time he started. It just says he at midnight he was still preaching. And there were many lights in the upper chamber where they were gathered together. The second time expression is used here. 
And there sat in a window a certain young man named Eutychus, being fallen to a deep sleep. And as Paul was long preaching, <laughs> he sunk down with sleep and fell down from the third loft and was taken up dead. And Paul went down and fell on him and embraced him and said, Trouble not yourselves, for his life is in him. When he therefore was come up again, had broken bread and eaten, that's a meal, he talked a long while, even till break of day. So he departed. This service went on all night long. His speech went to midnight. This young man, and we're given his name. It's kind of interesting to me that the Lord identifies who this young man is. You know, I, uh, <laughs> uh, I've gotten used to people sleeping while I was preaching a long time ago. That's just the truth of the matter. Now, thankfully, it's not too many, but every once in a while, somebody goes to sleep, and then they'll come through the handshake and tell me what a wonderful sermon it was. And I, when I see somebody bow their head, shut their eyes, I'm just totally convinced they've gone to sleep. Now, I don't know about you, but that's pretty good evidence as far as I'm concerned, right? You know what they call this man right here? They call this man the father of all those who go to sleep under a sermon. <laughs> That's his reputation. That's his label. How would you like to have that label? He's referred to as a young man twice. So how young is a young man? Because the young man, the first time the young man is used and the second time come from two different words. The first time the young man is used, it means a man probably between about 20 and 40. The second man, time it's used, it means a lad, a young boy, a young girl. So I'm not sure, but at least this tells me you can still be called young if you're not past 40, right? All right, he fell. He fell asleep. Now, maybe it was caused of the stiffness of the lights. Maybe it was Paul's long preaching. I don't know. But uh, there's a saying that I uh, learned a long time ago that no sermon is too bad if it's short enough. And no sermon is too long if it's good enough. And that's how I, how I rate sermons. <laughs> no sermon is too bad if it's short enough. But no sermon is too long if it's good enough. Right? Well, Paul must have preached a good one. Because his speech went to midnight. Then you have this interruption. The young man falls down and he's dead. You know what his name means? His name means fortunate slash happy. He would have been happy there was an apostle doing that preaching there and not say Timothy. So C.H. Spurgeon made this statement one time. He said, this ought to be a warning to all young folks, anybody. Be sure you don't fall down, fall, uh, make sure you don't fall asleep and die under a sermon because there may not be an apostle there. <laughs> I can assure you it will not be because there are no apostles today. So if you fall asleep and die in the congregation, there's not going to be an apostle hanging around to, to revive you up and by the power of God raise you from the dead. So that's one lesson I get out of this. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> so then he departed at break of day. Paul had a lot of stamina. He didn't even sleep. He preached all night. In the morning they broke bread and he left. And they sailed to a place called Asos. Now, I want to take a look at the balance of this thing here, hit the high spots of this. Paul's farewell message to the elders at Ephesus that he got them to meet him at another place, in Miletia. He got the elders of Ephesus. Who were the elders of Ephesus? They were the ministers in, in, in Ephesus. When I search the New Testament, I find there are several names that New Testament ministers go by. One is elder. Primitive Baptist ministers go by elder. Elder is a seasoned person, a mature person who has gained recognition, et cetera, et cetera, of having a gift to preach the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. First Peter chapter 5, Peter speaks about the sufferings of the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, who also I'm a witness of his sufferings and an elder. Paul says, receive not an accusation against an elder except for two or three witnesses, uh, et cetera. And no question about it, the word elder is a title given to New Testament ministers. But in verse 28, he's going to tell those uh, elders to, uh, well, let's notice what he said. Verse 28 again, Take heed therefore unto yourselves 
and to all the flock of which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers. The word for overseer means shepherd. I look back in Ephesians 4, 11 and 12, and Paul says the Lord Jesus Christ led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men, and he gave some apostles, he gave some prophets, he gave some evangelists, some pastors and teachers, and the word for pastor is shepherd. New Testament ministers go by the name of pastor, shepherd, elder, 1 Timothy 3, 1, if any man desire the office of bishop, he desireth a good work or the word bishop. There's about four different names. The apostle Peter, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, when he was talking about Paul, just called him Brother Paul. Now I got some people in the church that call me pastor. That's fine. That's a New Testament title. Uh, sometimes people will say brother elder or whatever. Uh, down, down at the little Union Church, there was a woman named Sister Marguerite Holland. She was, uh, she was uh, unique. <laughs> she was unique. And she always called Karen Sister Preacher. <laughs> uh, now she knew Karen couldn't preach, but she called her Sister Preacher anyway. And that was fine with her and fine with me. So what are we not called? Go to Matthew chapter 23, and the Lord says, Call no man rabbi, call no man father, and call no man master. Because you got one Father which is in heaven, you got one Master which is Christ. Call no man Rabbi, call no man Father, call no man Master. Psalms 111, verse 9. David says, The Lord has sent redemption unto his people. He says, Holy and reverent is his name. That's the name of God, it's not the name of a man. So we don't call our ministers reverend, we don't call them Rabbi, we don't call them Master. We don't call them father. We do call them elder. Basically, that's what we call them. They could be called bishop, could be called shepherd, be called pastor. So he gathers the elders of Ephesus together. And he speaks about the past, he speaks about the present, and he speaks about the future. Notice what he says about the past. When I was with you, he says, remember this. He says, serving the Lord with all humility. That was Paul's main objective was to serve the Lord. Serving the Lord with all humility of mind, with many tears and temptations, which befell me by lying in wait of the Jews. Here's his reference, what I mentioned a little earlier. At least four different times in the book of Acts, the Jews laid in wait to take the life of the Apostle Paul. And how I kept back nothing that was profitable unto you, but have showed you and have taught you publicly and from house to house, testifying both to the Jews and also to the Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. He said, I kept back nothing that was profitable unto you. In 2 Timothy 3.16, Paul says, all scriptures given by inspiration of God and is profitable. So I know Paul was talking about the scriptures here. Paul didn't keep back any scriptures uh, that was recorded in that time. Paul preached the whole counsel of God. He kept back nothing that was profitable to God's people. It's been my experience over the years to know that some churches have a weakness or deficiency in certain things. You know why? Because that which was profitable in the scriptures, the preachers avoided it. I've known churches who didn't know how to give because preachers avoided it. They didn't preach on giving. They didn't preach on what the Bible has to say about money and giving and contributions, things of that nature, because they didn't want to be known as a money preacher. They didn't want to be known as a preacher for money, etc. So they forsook their duty and their responsibility and simply didn't mention it. And the church became very weak and very deficient in these areas. And you could tell it in a lot of different ways. I can say this about Bethel Primitive Baptist Church. Bethel Primitive Baptist Church has been blessed with good ministers and good pastors for a long, long, long time. I didn't have to have anybody tell me that. I was able to see that. I knew some of them, some of them I didn't know. They're all listed out there next to the library. I knew, knew some of them personally. The very first pastor of this church was Elder C.H. Casey in 1915. He died in the 1930s. I never met him, but I feel like I know him real good because I read so many of his writings. A lot of people don't know how blessed Bethel Church was to get started off with Elder C.H. Casey. He's got volumes of, of writings, editorials, etc. There's hardly a church paper I get that don't have an a, a article in that paper almost every month written by Elder C.H. Casey. But I've been able to tell and observe over the time 
There's been some faithful pastors here who've taught the Lord's children at Bethel Primitive Baptist Church their deeds and responsibilities in many areas, and giving is one of them. I hope that I've been able to hook on to that from time to time and mention enough about it to teach properly in these areas. But Paul kept back nothing that was profitable to the Lord's church. Sometimes that means preaching on some subject just as soon as to avoid and take a detour around because you know it's not the most popular subject in all the world. But nevertheless, it's the main responsibility of the pastor of the church to be sure the Lord's children hear the whole counsel of God. Let's notice here in closing what, we have to, what Paul had to say to them about the, his present. And now, he says, Behold, I go bound in the Spirit unto Jerusalem, not knowing the things that shall befall me there. Remember I told you earlier? Paul didn't know what was going to befall him. Christ knew exactly what was going to befall him. But Paul knew Christ would go with him, and he knew what was going to befall him. Save that the Holy Ghost witnessed in every city, wherever Paul went, there was a witness saying that bonds and afflictions abide me. He knew that much. But notice this here. I want to really focus here on verse 24. But none of these things move me. Paul already knew by experience that he could die at any time by the hands of the Jewish people unless God delivered him. He already knew that. And he didn't know for sure how he was going to die. He knew there was afflictions and bonds that awaited him, but he says, none of these things move me. What a man, what a courageous man, what a faithful and dedicated man that the Apostle Paul was. None of these things move me. Neither count I my life dear unto myself so that I might finish my course with joy and my ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. Did you notice the my's in here? My life, my course, my ministry. He said, none of these things move me, neither count my life dear unto myself. He loved the Lord more than he loved himself, in other words. He loved the Lord more than he loved his own life. He was willing to die for the Lord if that was what was required. That I might finish my course with joy. He won an honorable discharge from the ministry. He won an honorable discharge from the Lord. Whenever it came time for him to leave this world in the park, he won an honorable discharge. He said, I want to finish my course. I've got a course, and I want to finish it with joy. Even though afflictions await me, I want to finish it with joy. He wanted to go out <laughs> with a faithful discharge in his ministry. He says, which I have received of the Lord Jesus. That means he recognized he was a steward. You know, what a, you know what a steward is? A steward owns practically nothing, or maybe nothing, and yet he possesses all things. A steward was somebody, a servant, that the master would place his goods in his hands, his possessions in his hands, and expect him to properly take care of them. He didn't own any of those things. He didn't own the money. He didn't own the land. He didn't own the possessions, etc., etc. But it was required of a steward. He be found faithful. And he said, I received this of the Lord. He saw himself as a steward. Paul possessed practically nothing in his life, materially speaking. At the same time, he possessed all things. Isn't that kind of ironic? I mean, that's, um, that's what you call a paradox. A paradox are not two doctors, okay? A paradox is two statements. And they seem like they contradict, but they don't. When you properly understand it, they're both true and they fit together. This is a paradox. You own nothing, but you possess everything at the same time. As my good friend, Brother Lonnie, says every once in a while, he's the poorest rich man he knew, knows. <laughs> I understand that. He says, I received the Lord to testify the gospel of the grace of God. That's exactly what I've committed my life to do for 50 years. I'm in my 50th year of trying to do what I'm doing this morning. And maybe one of these days I'll learn how to do it. I mean that. It's a learning process all the time. I tell Brother Tim, I said, Tim, learn from every experience. Learn from every effort. You learn, learn something from every effort. I'm still doing that. Been at it for nearly 50 years now. 
I'm still learning. I'll never get graduated. It's just the way it is. Just, just the way it is. But I'm going to tell you what I've been trying to do and what I'm going to continue to try to do until the Lord says, enough's enough. Come on home and be with me. I'm going to try to do my best to testify of the grace of God. I want you to know before time ever began, grace overcame you and grace picked you out and grace chose you and gave you to Jesus Christ in a covenant relationship. I want you to know that the grace of God, my friends, has seen in the Lord Jesus Christ how he came down from heaven and he became poor for our sakes and we through his poverty might become rich. I want you to understand something about the commending grace of God, something about the constraining grace of God, the saving grace of Christ. I want you to know something about the enabling grace of Christ, serving grace and living grace and dying grace. I, want, I need grace to live, and I know I need grace to die. And I know God's give me that grace, and if grace is good enough to live by, to die by, it's good enough to live by. So I want to testify of the grace of God. Now, Paul speaks about the future. He tells them after this, the parting grievous wool should come in, not sparing the flock. He says, there shall be some that shall come in among you and shall draw disciples after themselves. You know, he says, you watch out for that. There will come wolves in sheep's clothing. The Lord warned his disciples about that, that there be sheep in wolves' clothing. Why is that? A wolf would only be in sheep's clothing for the purpose of deceiving the Lord's children. He'd try to look like a sheep, but he's not a sheep. You know how you tell the difference between a wolf and a sheep that's in sheep's clothing? Watch his tracks. Take a look at his footprints. The foot of a sheep and the foot of a wolf are not the same. He may look sheepy, <laughs> but he's wolfy. <laughs> now, I love my North Carolina State wolf pack, you know, the wolfy. You'd have to be a fan to know about that. <laughs> anyway. When Paul got ready to leave, this is one of the most tender, beautiful scenes to me in all the Bible. They loved this man. He'd been with them three years. Oh, how they loved him. He says, I'll see your faces no more. And they fell on his neck. And they began to weep. And he knelt down on the seashore. And prayed with them. Then he got in the ship and he left and he never saw him anymore in this life. But like the old preachers used to say, maybe one day if I get to be an old preacher and I'll say it myself. I may not ever see you again in this world, but I'll see you on the sunny banks of sweet deliverance. I'll see you there. This is Paul's farewell journey and Paul's farewell message.